Welcome to Healthy Outcomes, brought to you by Baker Tilly, bringing you the latest trends and hottest topics in healthcare. Baker Tilly is a leading advisory, tax, and assurance firm dedicated to helping healthcare organizations explore ways in which they can win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's go there. Hi, my name is Mark Ross, and I'm the leader of Baker Tilly's Healthcare Provider Practice. Joining me for today's Healthy Outcomes podcast are two of my Baker Tilly colleagues, Keith Hutchinson and Brian Restivo. Keith is a partner with our firm and leads our acute care reimbursement practice, and Brian is a director in our acute care reimbursement practice. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Mark, it's great to be here with you today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Mark. I appreciate it. You bet. On today's podcast, we will be talking about some of the final Medicare reimbursement changes that will impact inpatient acute care services for the federal government's fiscal 24, which begins October 1 of 2023. We're also going to touch on some of the proposed changes to the outpatient prospective payment system, which are scheduled to become effective January 1 of 2024. So by way of background, if we go back, rewind several months here, on April 10th of 2023, CMS released their proposed rule relative to Medicare's inpatient prospective payment system. Between then, between April 10th and August 1st, CMS did some work on that proposed rule. And on August 1st, they issued their final rule describing their policies and rates for fiscal 2024, again, relative to Medicare's inpatient prospective payment system. The final rule was published in the Federal Register on August 28th of 2023. The payment rates and policies described in the final rule affect Medicare's operating and capital payments for short-term acute care hospital inpatient services. So we're, that's, Keith, that's my background. I'm going to stop there without uh, digging myself too much of a hole since this is your area of, of specialty here. So Keith, if we look at last year's final rule, so if we rewind to the summer of 2022, CMS did the same thing. They issued a final rule relative to fiscal 2023, their fiscal 2023, right? And now we're at this in the summer of 2023, and they're doing the same thing with fiscal 24. So how do the final rules, Keith, last year and this year, how do they compare? What are inpatient acute care hospitals looking at from a Medicare reimbursement perspective? Sure, Mark. In order to appreciate the 24, we're going to look back to 23 just a moment. And the hospitals received in 23 a market basket increase of 4.1% adjusted by 0.3% for productivity for a final rate increase of 3.8%. So comparatively, for 24, the proposed rule started out 1% lower at 3.1%, adjusted for productivity again by 0.3% to get to 2.8. The final rule, they gave a little more, started out at 3.3% with a 2% reduction for productivity to equal 3.1%. And so that is before budget neutrality. It's a lower rate of 0.3%. 7% and 
it's still a high inflation time that we're in. We believe that our client's cost is still higher. Last year was an okay rate increase, but not what they needed. This year seems to be even lower. And some of the things that make on the surface, you're saying, okay, 3.1%, that's not that bad, but it looks pretty meager after we go through a couple more items. Uh, The first item is there's a lot of budget neutrality factors out there. There's budget neutrality factors for the DRG recalibration. There's a budget neutrality factor for a cap policy on the DRG weights. In addition, there was already a wage index budget neutrality factor, and there is a rural demonstration budget neutrality factor. The biggest things that have hit us here lately are in this year, there's a reclassification budget neutrality factor. And Brian will talk a lot more about the reclassification issues, but that was proposed at a 0.9809, let's say, and ended up being a 0.9712. So that is almost a percentage point drop. It's 0.0098. So when you take that and you take some of the other factors, it brought the payment rate down from 3.1, then you've got 0.2 reduction for productivity, then you've got budget neutrality factors, brings it down to a 1.9% increase. Now, you could be higher than that if you're in a nice wage area that picked up, but off a base rate, that's where we're, in my opinion, that's where we start, 1.9%. Then on top of that, one of the first things that was cut that's not in this is new technology again. That's a pass-through payment. CMS says it's estimated to decrease by $365 million. The biggest hit was uncompensated care pool. This is part of the DISH payment. It was proposed to be reduced by $161 million. CMS actuary made an adjustment to one of the factors, and all of a sudden, that is now $936 million decrease. So from 161 proposed, 936 in final. So you're up to about a million three there in cuts after the one. A billion three. Oh, a, yes, a, a billion, billion three. three. Sorry. Yeah. It's still. Yeah, no, that's okay. That, so that was a pretty big, whatever adjustment the actuary made there was a pretty significant adjustment then. <laughs> Correct. Right? Yes. Yeah. Now, really, if you take that off of the 1.9%, we're getting down there pretty low on any kind of increase. On top of that, once again, the outlier threshold increased up to 40732 I believe that's about a 5.7% increase. Once again, that will reduce outlier payments. And then the hospital-acquired conditions comes back in only for the uh, worst-performing hospital quartile. 
they take a 1% reduction of payment. There's a lot of cuts off of that first number they throw out to make it sound really good increase. Well, even, well, Keith, even one would argue, even the 3.1 doesn't sound all that great, but it sounds like, as you said, it sounds better than 1.9%. Just right. <laughs> so the budget neutrality, you're taking it from 3.1 down to down to 1.9, and then you have all these other deducts. So overall, this doesn't appear to be favorable news for the inpatient acute care hospital community. No, and as uh, Brian's going to talk about wage index next, so... The bigger thing is you've gotten yourself to almost hardly any increase here. And then depending on where you live, where your hospital's located, the wage index part is really going to blow your mind here on how they would come up with what they've just done. So, so Keith, that's, again, a great segue to, as you said, Brian's going to be touching on on, on wage index. So, Brian, what are the most significant issues impacting wage index as hospitals look ahead to fiscal 24? And again, when I say fiscal 24, this uh, I, I'm talking about October 1st. These changes become effective October 1st of 2023. Yep. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. There's a bunch of moving parts here for wage index for the upcoming federal fiscal year. And not only does it impact the inpatient payments that start 10-1, Mark, these wage index updates translate over to calendar year 2024 for the outpatient rate updates as well. So keep that in mind. What we saw here is a couple of things, and I'll start first with the actual average hourly wage that we're seeing for 2024's wage index compared to the prior year. So if the final rule, the average wage across the country was $50.34, compared to 23, that's about a 5.5% increase. Back in 2023, the national rate was $47.71. And the way the wage index works is if you're higher than that average, you're going to have a positive adjustment to your Medicare base rates. And if you're below that national average, you'll actually have a reduction. But the goal is to at least keep pace with the national market year over year so you don't have a large fluctuation in your payment rate related to the wage index. But what we saw is a very large increase, probably the largest we've seen in a very long time. And a lot of that's due to the contract labor that was incurred related to the COVID pandemic and the nursing shortages that soon followed thereafter. There was actually a couple of comments that hospital providers and lobbyists had put in that Medicare would skip this year, or they had requested Medicare to skip the year with COVID-related data in there because they felt that some of the wages were going up too much. But Medicare took a look at the data in aggregate and felt that there was no issues with the data being used, and they're not making any type of adjustment for any of the contract labor that was utilized. So there is no no change that Medicare is making to the actual data they're using for the particular year. In contrast, what we have heard is a, a lot more scrutiny around audits around contract labor that's being used for the wage index for periods moving forward. But we don't there is no changes expected there. The one large change that I'll talk about that did get finalized that we spoke about previously, Mark, is how Medicare is computing the rural floor. And there's a whole harmless provision out there for Medicare that a hospital can't be paid less than any rural market within their state. And what got finalized here, Mark, is how CMS handles hospitals that have reclassified from urban to rural for uh, various reasons, from medical education to wage index. And now including those urban hospitals as if they were rural has driven up the rural floor 
in a number of states across the country. And in some instances, that's actually drove down some of the rural floor numbers, depending on which hospitals reclassified from urban to rural. So it really shook up the landscape for federal fiscal year 2024. If we look at comparison data a year over year, 28 urban markets have a wage index that's going up and 182 that are going down. In rural markets, 26 are going up and 21 are decreasing and the remaining are about the same. But what we saw is about half of the country, nearly half the hospitals are going to be paid their rural floor for the year compared to prior years where it was only it was significantly less than that. So with all these hospitals getting upticks and in increased payments in the wage index for the rural floor, Keith mentioned one of the budget neutrality factors before. There's a separate budget neutrality factor for the wage index itself, and that's the rural floor neutrality factor. And what that does is actually reduces the wage index that you would have been paid. So those hospitals that are declining from the changes are hit even harder here because it's about a 2.18% reduction to your wage index of what it would have been prior to this rule change. And that's about a, that factor mark was about less than 1%. It's almost two and a half times of what it used to be. So those that didn't keep pace or they didn't benefit are getting harmed even more. Thankfully, there's a cap on the decrease year over year mark that a lot of hospitals will be saved financially from these changes is that there's a 5% cap in which year over year hospital can't go down in terms of the wage index factor. That 5% is an annual factor. So eventually it'll catch up each year, but down the road, but at least year over year, they're the limited reductions to 5%. Otherwise, a lot of hospitals would have had substantial losses. Um, the other thing that got finalized for one more year, at least, Mark, is the um, lowest quartile adjustment was finalized again for one more year. And what that does is take those hospitals that are below the 25th percentile and raise them up to that 25% benchmark. And that's helped a lot of those hospitals out as well. That particular rule has been challenged in the courts and is currently being appealed by CMS moving forward. But as of right now, they're going to keep pushing that rule down until they ultimately lose that court case through the appeals. And that's what we got going on from the wage index standpoint. Yeah. So from a wage index perspective, Brian, and again, this may be a silly question, excuse my ignorance here, but you mentioned the 228 up, I believe 182 down. And I forget what specifically that was. What hospitals were they? I'm sorry. Those were the urban markets. So there's 200 urban markets. So 220 urban markets are going to have an increase in their wage index. 182 urban markets are going down. At the individual hospital level, it's about, it's split because you've got a lot of ups and downs compared to the national average. But overall, there's 26 rural markets that are going up from the prior year. And a lot of that's being driven by the how Medicare is computing the rural floor. Got it. If you use New York or Pennsylvania, for example, they were large benefactors of the computed rural floor where those wage indexes went up significantly. In contrast, you had areas such as Colorado, West Virginia that actually went down due to some of those changes in the rural floor. Got it. And get, so getting back, Brian, to the concept that Keith talked about quite a bit here about budget neutrality, 
is this, are these ups and downs because everyone's wages have gone up, right? I just, let me just put it in simplistic terms, right? Yep. Hospital wages across the country have all gone up. We know that with contract labor, et cetera, just general wage increases, they've gone up. But th- this is, is this part of the budget neutrality exercise as well, where, listen, even though everybody's gone up, some, from a reimbursement perspective, some wage indices need to go up and others need to go down to keep everything budget neutral. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, and that's why you've got, you always have winners and losers. It's a, it's a zero-sum game. Again, if the national rate's going up 5.5%, Mark, and your hospital's go, only going up 3% or 4%, if you're a 3 or 4%, you're going to be on the decline side where your wage index is going to be lower than the prior year. What we've heard from a lot of hospitals that we work with is that that they believe that they have spent a, a ton of money in contract labor and felt that their wage indexes would be significantly higher than a prior year. But what we've turned out to see is that those particular hospitals are just running at the national average or actually even behind the national average. While operationally, it's it's a large expense and it's a big variance in their budget and their run rates, those particular hospitals compared to the rest of the country or even their market are, are may, may be at par or even below par. It's about keeping up pace with the rest of the country and trying to be above the five and a half percent to get that increase. Yeah, so a lot of it's... It sounds simple, right? Wage index sounds simple. It's just one of the many components of the reimbursement calculation methodology, but it's also it's highly complicated at the same time, Brian, the way you described it. So from one complicated issue to the next, Brian, let's flip, flip over to a, another issue that's received a lot of publicity of late, and that's the 340B program. And, and wanted to ask you to comment for our listeners, Brian, on, on the settlement payment that the federal government will be paying to eligible hospitals that are in the 340B program. And the settlement payment in total is about $9 billion. That's the number. And that $9 billion is intended to offset payment cuts that the Supreme Court in June of 2022 ruled unlawful, right? There were some payment cuts, the 340B providers, it got elevated to the Supreme Court. They came back and said, hey, these cuts were unlawful. And now we're in the process or the government's in the process of figuring out how to get this $9 billion out into into providers' hands. This is actually some good news for those providers that'll be receiving some of this money. Can you talk a bit about how that money is going to be dispersed or what the plans are currently to disperse those funds? Sure, yeah, absolutely, Mark. So what Medicare did a few months ago was put out a proposed rule on the remedy of that court decision because the court didn't decide how CMS was to, in fact, actually pay back those funds to hospitals other than that the way that CMS went about the payment reduction cuts to those 340B hospitals was unlawful. Um, And I do want to point out that Medicare didn't necessarily disagree with the fact that Medicare couldn't reduce those payments. It's just how Medicare actually went about to reduce those payments without supportive data. Supreme Court left it a little open that down the road, Medicare could come back again and reduce those payments to hospitals if they followed proper protocol and and data aggregation and and actual uh, statistics were used and reducing the payments. But what we saw now is that, at least at the immediate level, um, the courts have given the relief to the hospitals. Uh, The payment cuts have stopped currently, but the open issue was how to pay hospitals back for 2018 through 2022, where they had a payment reduction of their average sales price less 22.5% which was pretty substantial. As you mentioned, it was $9 billion overall throughout the country. And what Medicare has done to the 
benefit of those particular hospitals that were impacted was to recommend a lump sum payment to those hospitals to cover all those open years in one lump sum payment, right? So we expect the final rule and their final decision on remedy to come out in a few months. And once the final rule is issued, it is expected that 60 days after they give instructions to the Medicare auditor contractors that payments would come out. But in typical fashion, what Medicare has done here, Mark, is they are applying this in a budget neutral fashion, meaning that there's going to be winners and losers here. Those that are the winners are going to be at the 340B hospitals and the losers are going to be uh, those that are non 340B hospitals. And that's because the way Medicare intends to fund this is to take a half a percent reduction, the outpatient base rate factor every year for the next 16 years to recoup those funds. That's where you have hospitals that will have a half a point reduction to their outpatient payments to help fund this. If we go back when this first all occurred back in 2018 and during that time frame, Medicare, when they reduced the payments to the 340B hospitals, it was done in budget neutral fashion and they actually increased payments to all the other hospitals. Now they're going back and unwinding all that activity over the past, since 2018, So those hospitals are going to have a substantial hit to their outpatient payments moving forward. And likewise, it's not just Medicare, but any contract that they may have with Medicare managed care companies that pay a percent of Medicare as well. We suspect that there could be appeals filed by non-340B hospitals on the other end of all this. Where that goes, we don't know, but we suspect that there could be a large pushback by a number of hospitals that don't benefit from this overall. Yeah, but so the 340B hospitals, as I indicated when I when I asked the question, the 340B hospitals are the one benefiting from, they're gonna be receiving these funds, but the non-340B are, are gonna end up paying this, paying for it over the next 16 years, Brian, right? Is that what you're, that's the summary of it all? Yeah, that's correct. Another thing I, I did forget to mention here is that there was concern that Medicare was gonna force the hospitals to rebuild the patients for their patient responsibility, but Medicare has decided that they will essentially eat that and make the payment on behalf of the payment patient of what they would have paid. So they're going to try to wash that all out and try to have a, try to avoid any hospital from having to reprocess any type of claims related to this. They did make hospitals reprocess claims for part of 2022 and 23, which did not fare too well for a lot of hospitals and the backload that it caused and administrative issues. So I think it's a positive that we got a single lump sum payment coming to help those hospitals out, but the reduction to fund it it is going to be a sticking point for many hospital associations as well as not 340B hospitals. Sure. Sure. So let's pivot then. And Keith, I'm going to, I'm going to come back over to you. And Brian mentioned the half a percent reduction for the next 16 years on the outpatient side of things. And I also mentioned at the outset, and I think Keith, you mentioned too, Brian, you also may have mentioned this, that the hospital outpatient prospective payment system. In July of 23, CMS issued a proposed rule for outpatient changes that'll happen effective January 1 of 2024. So beyond the half a percent that Brian just mentioned relative to this 340B, I'll call it a 340B payback. I don't know what else to call it. But besides that, what, what are some of the other highlights, Keith, or the headlines maybe from the proposed outpatient rule? Yeah, Mark, it starts off in similar fashion CMS gives an overall increase proposed for outpatient is 3%. 
And then there's a 0.2% uh, uh, reduction coming up with a 2.8% increase. Now, just like the inpatient, there are some budget neutrality adjustments like a low wage index budget neutrality and a cap policy for wage reduction at 5% adjustment. And you take those adjustments and then they make a drug and device pass-through adjustment to it. In the end, it comes out to be about a 2.2% increase. So after starting at three, you get down to about 2.2%. Some of the other highlights, they made a commitment to help out with outpatient mental health. And there's a couple proposed programs in here. One is an intensive outpatient program to address some of the gaps in behavioral health coverage. This would be provided in an outpatient department, a community mental health center, or an FQHC or RHC. They're going to have really two different categories to be developed, one that has three services a day, and the other would be four or more services per day. Sounds like a lot to me from an outpatient standpoint, but we'll see how that falls out. And you can get paid as an FQHC or RHC, so that is good. They're also looking to expand in the partial hospitalization program for mental health. Once again, adding two new partial hospitalization APCs, one for three services a day and one for four or more services. Then they're also looking at making some dental services. There's approximately 229 dental codes to align with the physician fee schedule that they're looking at, and 26 separately payable dental surgical procedures. So there's some movement in that area as well that would be welcomed. And then uh, there is a quality reporting that if you meet the requirements, if, if you don't, you could receive a Two percent reduction in payments. And those are things like COVID vaccine coverage among your healthcare personnel, cataract improvement with patients that have surgery within 90 days of the surgery, and then normal colonoscopy follow-up that interval to be aligned with clinical guidelines. Okay. They have some quality reporting there as well. And then, of course, one of the bigger things that could sting providers is hospital price transparency. And I'm going to let Brian add a couple comments in that area. Yeah, thanks, Keith. So what we saw is a bunch of proposed rules from CMS related to price transparency as a result of some of the digging they've been doing in terms of hospitals compliance and the regulations are even having to post your charges and negotiate rates out there on the public websites. The CMS did a survey back in the fall of 22 and said that about 70% of the hostels were fully compliant with the criteria. Uh, while it was a large increase from the prior year's survey, um, they felt that hostels were still lagging um, and being fully compliant. Uh, and so some of the notable items that providers need to be aware of is, is some of the 
change they're making uh, or proposed to make, one being that CMS is proposing to have a standard format slash template that hospitals need to use. Current state today, all hospitals have free reign in what they could publish and how they publish it in the format, what fields are, are in the file they put up there. It, and what CMS is looking to do is make it standard the same across the board so it's easier to audit and enforce and for people to pull the data. If this proposal is finalized, Keith, uh, hospitals would have to become compliant with the new template by March 1 of 2024. So by the time this is finalized in mid-October, you'll only have a few months to get up to speed with the new template. Some of the other items, Keith and Mark, that they're looking to do is, is to strengthen up the enforcement actions on non-compliance of price transparency. So what they're looking to do is essentially eliminate the warning notice that they've granted hospitals in the past year or two um, and immediately move to a request for a corrective action plan. Current state CMS has been given warnings before they issue a corrective action plan. And what CMS is proposing is to take out that warning and move right to a corrective action plan with a specific short deadline to comply. Otherwise, there'll be monetary penalties that would start to accrue for each day that you're out of compliance. We're starting to see CMS really start to ratchet down on enforcement and the way providers are handling these price transparency requirements. And there's also a, a slew of new potential fields that they want providers to publish, including how they contract with the payers, whether the contract's a percent of charge or it's a fee schedule. They want all that laid out here, potentially as early as March, if this is finalized. And in addition, what's interesting is that what we found is a lot of hospital providers have these machine-readable files for price transparency located on the financial assistance webpage or other webpages. And Medicare has come out in the proposed rule and says they want the link to the file to be on the homepage at the bottom of the web page. That way, for every hospital web website they go to, there's a link at the bottom of the homepage that you can go and click on it and find it. Because what CMS has noticed is that it's very difficult to find these files, and they're trying to streamline it, audit it, and enforce it. And this may be a step that where all hospitals are now going to have it on their front page, which is a stark difference from where they have it currently today. The last piece really I'll mention real quickly is that current state, there is no official authorization when these files are posted. There's no statement of accuracy or completeness of the data. If you think of how Medicare does course reports, they require an officer at the station, whether it's a CFO or a CEO. They're potentially looking at a CEO or CFO certification of these prices being accurate and complete, and that they're updated every 12 months, which would then, again, put more enforcement action that CMS can then go rely on if the data is inaccurate, not complete. So we're starting to see it become a little bit more stricter than it was the last year or two when it comes to price transparency. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, Brian, not only is the transparency, price transparency information difficult to maybe find on on certain websites, of it, but even if someone were to find it, I think generally speaking, it's very difficult to understand. And so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate over price transparency and ultimately what the what the goal of price transparency was and is that goal actually being accomplished in the current state? And I I don't know that it is, but ultimately it's a regulation and hospitals need to comply with it. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I think it's difficult for a normal consumer to understand what those files mean. So I agree 100%, but it, it's another layer of administrative 
regulations that providers have to meet or they'll be penalized financially. And those limits can go up to a few million dollars a year. Typically, it's about $10 per bed per day for being out of compliance. So that number could raise up pretty quickly if you have multiple hospitals in the system that are considered to be non-compliant. Sure, sure. Keith, Brian, I want to thank you for, for joining me today. We could go on for another hour or two or, or maybe even three and talk about all the reimbursement changes and everything that, that's going to be coming down the pike. But the highlights for me, at least two of the highlights I'll, I'll mention, and Keith, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong on these percentages I give, but on the inpatient side, uh, inpatient acute care hospitals, effective October 1, 2023, even though what's been publicized out there, publicized is this 3.1% payment update, a 3.1% bump. At the end of the day, Keith, when it's adjusted, when that 3.1% is adjusted for budget neutrality, and by the way, I already knocked the 3.1% down by that productivity cut at 0.2%, but the 3.1% gets knocked down for budget neutrality. We're at about a 1.9% increase in the base rate, the base payment rates for Medicare inpatient services. And then but you combine that with all of the other items that you talked about, the uncompensated care, which is the the most significant one. That's actually mind-blowing that there was that sort of change between the proposed rule and the final rule, almost at a billion-dollar cut, a billion, $1 billion cut in that uncompensated care pool. That is very significant. And then on the outpatient side, again, we started around 3%, and you knock that down for several different adjustments. Again, about 3.3% is... 3%, excuse me, is what's being publicized. But after you peel the onion back a bit, Keith, we're at about 2.2%, right? So so the exercise of peeling that onion every year to, to really figure out what are we going to get? If I'm an inpatient acute care hospital, what am I going to be getting for Medicare? It does take some time, some analysis. So overall, not great news for providers out there at, at all on, on the Medicare reimbursement front. But before we close out this discussion, guys, any Brian Keith, anything I mentioned there in my summary or anything that you guys wanted to wanted to add? No, Mark. I think you summarized that very well. And there is a lot of moving parts. And not all of it is final, especially on the outpatient side, since it's proposed. Brian, anything else? No, the, the only other thing that providers need to be keeping an eye on is the Medicaid dish cuts that are expected to be scheduled here for 10 minus 23. Right now, there's a couple, there's a bill out there that would postpone these cuts for another two years. But right now, that's scheduled to go 10-1. Again, we come down to the wire every year on this. We're starting to see an uptick in newspaper articles and news runnings of how much hospital is going to be losing should these cuts come into place to reduce Medicaid funding to the state. So it's another thing to keep an eye on. Again, this has been ex- postponed for 13 years now. So this would be the 14th year it'd be pushed out and not put into place. But it's just something that hospital providers need to stay on top of with their lobbyists and their congressmen and senators to make sure that they can try to stave off these cuts for another year. Gotcha. Brian, I thought you were actually going to end on a positive note there. You, you shared more bad news. <laughs> yeah, typically. It's, <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is how it goes when it comes to to, to Medicare reimbursement. Listen, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I want to thank our listeners for joining this podcast. If you found this episode useful and would like to listen to more episodes about hot topics in the healthcare industry, please subscribe to our Healthy Outcomes podcast or learn more by visiting us at bakertilly.com. 
Thank you for listening. To receive notifications when new episodes are available, please subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts. For additional resources, check out bakertolead.com.